You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, several years ago, I was part of a ministry in Houston, Texas, that would periodically gather with pastors from all over the city uh, to pray. But every time I would show up at it, there was this one particular pastor that he and I, every time, were reintroduced. And I say reintroduced because I remembered him, but he never uh, remembered me. <laughs> but he would never say that. And so every time someone would be like, hey, you remember Ben, I think you've met, and he would go, oh yeah. And then to show everyone that he knew me, he would tell a story about me. The only problem was these stories were not about me. So he would be like, oh yeah, we've played golf together. He's got a mean swing. And I was like, I have never played golf like in life, not just with you, but like in my life. And then I remember the next time I went there, like, you remember Benny? He was like, oh yeah, we were sharing a go the gospel in a pool hall in the third ward. This guy's a powerful evangelist. And I was like, I've never been to a bar with you. Like, I don't know who this golf playing bar evangelist that you've got in your mind, but he's not me. But I never called him on him. I was never like, get these lies out of your mouth. You know, like I was like, you know, I would just kind of go, hey, hey, right? And uh, we would exchange some pleasantries, but uh, you know, our relationship was never deep. It certainly wasn't transformative. Uh, it was shallow because at the end of the day, he didn't know me. He didn't know me. Now, why do I say that? Because we were looking at the person of Jesus and everybody knows Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. Everybody's into Jesus. Katy Perry has got his name on her wrist. Justin Bieber's got his name on his rib cage. Miley Cyrus just sang, I got so high, I saw Jesus. Everybody's talking about Jesus, right? Taylor Swift, Eminem, Drake, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, everyone's dropping the name of Jesus into their different things. Uh, Barna just released a study that said the vast majority of Americans have a positive view of Jesus and 63% of people in the United States said they have made a personal commitment to him. Everybody's into Jesus. Pop stars, politicians, pro athletes, everyday people, everybody's into Jesus. Everybody knows Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. But I remember hearing Tim Keller say this once about New York. He said, man, you ask anybody about Jesus and they go, I love Jesus. He said, but then you ask him a little bit about what he said and what he did. And it's amazing how little people know about what the real Jesus said and what the real Jesus did. And so for many people, if they're honest, they say, yeah, I love Jesus, but don't know that much about him. So what happens? You end up just filling in the blanks with things you assume about Jesus. And when you do that, you get this constructed Jesus that's just kind of your own personal Jesus. And the problem with your own personal Jesus that you essentially make up is he tends to look a lot like you and coincidentally agree with and affirm everything you agree with and affirm. And the problem with a make-believe Jesus like that is he can't transform you because he can't contradict you. He can't challenge you because at the end of the day, he's just you. And so if we wanna be challenged, convicted, transformed into who we're meant to be under God by Jesus, then we need to meet the real Jesus. And that's what we get in the gospel of Mark. 
uh, we're looking at Mark and, and most scholars across the board believe that Mark was the first gospel ever written about Jesus. And it was written maybe in the late 50s AD or early 60s because Jesus died in the 30s AD. And for those first couple of years, so many people that knew him were alive and could tell stories about what he was like. It was very hard for distortions about Jesus to get in the public. Like if some guy was like, Jesus, oh yeah, I love that guy. Man, he used to fly around and throw fireballs. Like people who knew Jesus would be like, what? No, he wasn't like that. First Corinthians said that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people after he raised from the dead. That You could go and talk to so many people that knew him and knew what he was like. And yet, as persecution arose, people that knew Jesus well began to die. And so the early church was like, hey, the apostles that really knew Jesus and walked with them, we need to record everything Jesus said to them, everything Jesus did, so we don't get a distorted Jesus, we get the real Jesus. And we looked at it last week, that Mark journeyed with Peter and wrote down this apostle's understanding recollections and stories about Jesus so that we centuries later could get a look at the real Jesus. And what we're gonna see today is we're gonna watch Jesus introduce himself. Like, I don't know how you would introduce Jesus if you had a chance to do it. I don't know what you would emphasize, what you would read from his bio. But I'll say this, I promise you probably won't introduce him like this. Uh, now, let me tell you how we're gonna do this, by the way, if you're like, how are we gonna cover Mark in a semester? Uh, Mark, most gospels, your Bible tends to break up into these little chunks, little stories. Uh, scholars call them pericopes, which is a weird word. I don't really like it, uh, but it's better than stories because that sounds like they're made up. We'll just call them moments. Uh, and the Bible just kind of breaks up or, or later editors broke up Jesus's story into all these little moments, which is not bad. And most people, when they preach, preach these little moments one at a time, which is great and probably a very great way to do this. The only problem with that, that way of doing it is like you can break up moments like chapter one, verses 21 through 39 was all one day, one crazy day with Jesus. And it's tied together by the repetition of multiple words. And so sometimes when you break it up too small, you can miss the narrative flow of what Mark is trying to show us about Jesus. So the way we're going through the series is we're gonna do these big jumps like this so we can get some broad strokes of who he is. And tonight we're gonna watch Jesus present himself. And we're gonna get three things. First impressions, his self-identification, and then we'll do some personal applications. So that's where we're going. Jesus's first impressions, how people saw him, his self-identification, how he explains himself, and then we'll do some personal application and be out of here. But first impressions, we get starting in verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, which was in the north, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now we could do a whole sermon on what the kingdom of God means uh, and its significance for us. And that would be a great sermon. We're not gonna do it. But even if you don't know what that is, it sounds significant you realize it doesn't sound like he's just walking around giving out some advice. He's not passing out hugs. He's saying, there's a new kingdom in town. There's a new system of rule. And then he says, repent. That means change your entire life as a result of this new situation. Change your life because there's a new kingdom because the king is here. That's different. And then as he begins to walk around saying that, he begins to call his first disciples in the next five verses. And we see he walks by the sea, sees Simon and Andrew. And verse 17, he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You walk with me, I'll make you something else. And the response in verse 18 is immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, he walks a little further, sees James and John. Verse 20, it says, immediately he called to them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, we could do a whole sermon on what it means to be fishers of men and its significance, and it would be very meaningful. We're not gonna do that. 
But all that I want you to see in this section that's interesting is Jesus doesn't just call people to listen to him. He calls people to follow him. And then they do it. And their response is immediate and total. Two of them drop their nets. Two of them drop their dad. And they go. That prior commitments become a secondary thing in light of the arrival of the king, right? Now, some people see that and you're like, Ben, but... Isn't that how they did it back then? I mean, wasn't it like everyone would follow a rabbi in Jewish culture? Like you'd get a teacher and and you would just sort of follow and and the dust of the rabbi would cover you as you follow in his footsteps. Isn't this just kind of that? No. Because back then, yes, you would follow a rabbi unless you would uh, listen to him and, and, and be influenced by him, but you would keep your job. These guys left their job, left the net and the dad and bailed to go with Jesus, right? And number two, You chose the rabbi. It's like going to school. You pick where you want to go to school. You don't get a letter and they say, hey, you're going here, like it or not, for college. Hey, you get to decide. Jesus just pulls up and is like, you two, get in the truck. And then they do it. And as your original audience reading this, you'd be like, what? Who does that? Who calls people like that? Change your life because I just showed up. That's a different way to talk to people, right? Who is this? And then in verses 21 through 39, you get this one long crazy day with Jesus. And as they move into Jesus, verse 21, it says they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. You get this repetition of immediately because Mark wants you to have a sense of urgency. Hey, we're on the move with some guy that moves different. And he shows up on the Sabbath day. That was the day of rest at the end of the week where you would sit at the synagogue and listen to the word of God. And so they go on the Sabbath day to the synagogue and Jesus begins to teach. But in verse 22, it says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes would normally teach and they would read a little bit of the Old Testament and then they would cite multiple other scribes. Well, this rabbi interprets this passage this way, this rabbi interprets it that way, this rabbi interprets it this way, and if you add up all their interpretations, this text probably means this. That's kind of how they would teach. Jesus stands up and Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you what this really means. Let me tell you what I meant when I wrote it. And Jesus is talking with authority like he's in charge. And it astonishes them. They're listening to him. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. People don't teach like this. Who talks like that? Who speaks with authority like this? And they're astonished, but they don't get much time to think about it because notice in the text, verse 23, it says, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. So Jesus is teaching and a demon possessed guy starts freaking out. Makes for a very memorable church service, right? And Jesus cast a demon out. Now, what's interesting, did you notice, what, what astonished them was not even his exercising of a demon. And we could do an entire semen, uh, sermon on uh, demon possession and exorcism. It would be fascinating, I'm sure. We're not gonna do it. But back then, uh, there are, and we have historical documents of exorcisms that, that different religious leaders would do. And Jesus follows a, a script like they would do. They would call the demon to be silent and then call it to come out. And yet exorcists in that time, they would do that, but they would always do two other things. They would invoke a higher power in the name of the most high, I command you to come out. And then they would pair it with 
different incantations, different symbolic activity, right? Just, just different kind of stuff to draw the demon out. Those two things Jesus does not do. And that's what astonishes them. A demon starts screaming and Jesus goes, shut it, get out, and it does. So there's no head spinning, there's no crawling on the ceiling, right? Jesus would have made the most boring exorcism movie ever. He's in the middle of talking, some guy's like, ah, son of God, shut it, and credits roll. It's a very short film. But this happens and the people have no category for this. Their circuits are blown. They're like, this is crazy. It says they were amazed. There's a level of power here that is not analogous to anything else in my experience. It's alarming. It is not normal. But even if you don't fully understand what's happening at the end of it, you're like, whoa, 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 what was that? Who is this guy? Who possesses spiritual authority like that? But they didn't get much time to think about it because in verse 29 it says, and immediately they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. So they show up, mom-in-law's sick. Verse 31, and he came and he took her by the hand, lifted her up, the fever left, and she began to serve them. So he's teaching powerfully. He's spiritually powerful. But this is a physical issue. This is philosophical. This is whatever that was. But this is like a fever. This is like your body. This is like the real world. But they tell Jesus about it and he touches her. And it's not just that her fever breaks and she's like, oh, I feel better. And, and she kind of starts drinking some soup. It's that the fever is gone. She pops up and she begins to host people in her house. And they look at that and go, whoa, 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 this story ends. And by the end of it, it says that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick, or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. Who has authority over the physical world like that? Now, before we continue on, I just wanna do this. What stood out to them more than anything in the introduction of Jesus? First impression, what stood out about Jesus? His authority, his authority. Not so much the wisdom of his speaking, though it was wise, uh, not so much the amazingness or beauty of a spiritual acts, although I'm sure those were there. What, what amazed the crowd, what caught them and disrupted them was they say, this man commands people in a way that suggests that he believes he has the right to command people. This man con commands the unseen world in a way that suggests that he believes he has the right to command the unseen world. And the unseen world seems to agree with him. This command commands nature in a way that he believes the physical world should obey him and the physical world seems to agree with him. What kind of man does that? What kind of authority is this? That was the first impression of Jesus. It was his authority. And I'm just wondering if you see him that way or do you see him as somebody adorable whose advice maybe you take or maybe you don't? Wearing a, a white bathrobe, 100 pounds soaking wet, long stringy hair, Gaunt, needs a sandwich. That's not what they saw. They saw authority. I remember I did a wedding uh, up here not long ago, and actually it was a very long time ago, but uh, I did this wedding and, uh, you know, this guy had all his buddies uh, at it and we were like at this little reception after the rehearsal dinner and I met one of the groomsmen and he just told me, hey man, I'm one of the most effing non-religious people you'll ever meet. I was like, fantastic, thank you. That's not where I am. We're all on different journeys. But uh, I just, I appreciate that we all are kind of identified where we are in the story, right? I kind of like this. I find it refreshing. And so I remember when we showed up at the church the next day and we're waiting for the wedding to start, we're both kind of sitting in this pew and there's this beautiful stained glass, but it's just this 
tiny, a hundred pounds soaking wet with bricks in his pockets, Jesus, gaunt, white, long, stringy hair. And I was like, hey man, I just want you to be aware of what you're rejecting. You know, he looked nothing like that. And you know, that is not really the impression he gave off when he journeyed with people. When Jesus appeared on the scene, what stood out to them was his authority. This guy moves like he runs this place. Now, what's interesting is after those first impressions, did you notice there's not many people bowing down and worshiping him as Lord. They see he's got power, but they're not quite sure what to do with him. And so they do what everyone naturally does. Try to put him in a pre-existing box you have in your mind. And the easiest box first was, oh, he's healing people. He just must be the healing helper. Like that's Jesus. If you got a problem, yo, he'll solve it. That's their Jesus. Like, oh, I come to him if I've got a problem, I've got an issue and he'll solve that issue. So they all come to the door. But the interesting thing about that is that healing Jesus, that's why some people come to Jesus. I showed up at church because I got a problem. I just need uh, God to solve them. But that's also the reason why some people reject Jesus. They go, you need Jesus because you just need some help making it through life. You need someone to lean on like a crutch. I am sufficient in myself. I'm a human being because I can handle their own deals. And so for the very reason you accept Jesus, I reject him because I don't need him. It's a very utilitarian view. The problem with that is Jesus won't stay in that box. And you saw it in the next story. We won't read it again. Jesus healed all night long. And then he goes out and is praying with his father uh, by himself in the morning. And Peter comes up and goes, dude, everybody's looking for you. Presumably because man, they got all kinds of problems for you to solve. They got all kinds of people for you to heal. And what does Jesus say? No, leave it. He's pro-healing, he did it all night. But he said, no, I'm here to preach. That's why I came out. He said, no, I'm not just here to heal. I've got a message to give to the people and the miracles serve the message. So he won't stay in this box. I have something I wanna say to you about your life. Now, when some people hear that, they go, okay, I see where this is going. Some people preach the best friend, Jesus, love, love, love. He just wants to solve your problems. You're saying he's not that, all right. There's the religious rule keeper, Jesus. This is the one that's gaunt and old pictures, but terrifying because he's got sunken in eyes with black rings and fire behind him. This is the Jesus that has perpetually disappointed in you for not measuring up, right? And we're terrified of this Jesus, the religious rule keeper, Jesus. Get in line, do what you're told. He's here to about to tell you to straighten your life up. And what's interesting is Jesus is gonna get a moment where he's gonna identify himself. That's the next section. And he's gonna press back on this because in this religious rule maker section, chapter two, Mark gives us five moments in a row. And strictly speaking, they're not chronological. He organizes them thematically. And I don't know if you realize what they were. In these five stories, they are his encounter with the religious rule makers of the day. That Jesus, we read the story, heals a leper. And when he heals a leper, it makes him insta-famous. Which just a little heads up, if you ever heal a leper, buckle up, right? Because after this, Jesus can't go anywhere, right? He can't even wander the streets, right? It'd be like Taylor Swift trying to stop for brunch in Georgetown. You can't do it, right? And so you just realize, hey, Jesus suddenly can't go anywhere. Uh, he's got to hide out and duck and get around places. But suddenly he heals this leper and gets insta-famous. And so the religious leaders start showing up at his shows to just kind of watch what he's going to do. And they want to make sure he's going to stay in line with the way they present religion. The problem with Jesus is he just keeps getting out of your boxes. And so these five stories are all conflicts Jesus has with the religious leaders 
of their day. And we won't read them all. You can do them as you read this devotionally. I just want to center in on one. We'll summarize some of them and be done. But in his self-identification, it starts in chapter two, verse one. He goes back home to Capernaum. He's preaching in a house and it's packed. And as he's preaching and it's packed, some guys show up with a paralytic friend, which is a cool thing to do. Our friend's paralyzed. That guy can heal. Let's get him in there. But when they get there, they can't get him in the building, which is crazy. And so they climb up on the roof and rip a hole in it like you do. And they just lower their friend right in front of Jesus. Mid-sermon, paralyzed guy drops in front of him. And Jesus is cool with it. He's not upset. He kind of respects their ingenuity. And he's gonna heal the guy. But if you notice, he doesn't do it right away. He's like, hey man, stay paralyzed for a little bit. Go with me here. I'm gonna use this as a teaching opportunity. And Jesus, as the guy's laying in front of him, in verse five, it says, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's not what he came for. He came to walk. But Jesus is going past that physical presenting problem to the deeper issue. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some scribes, and Pharisees, or some scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's a good question. Who talks like that? That's a legitimate question. Who gets to say that? Only the offended party or the God who made you can forgive your sins. Like we've talked about this here before. Like if, if you two got in a fight and let's say it got ugly, not just a little disagreement, but like we had to separate you, okay? Like friendship's over and now it's gotten straight dangerous, okay? But let's say this is going on and I just, as they're in the middle of arguing, I come up and go, hey, I forgive you. <laughs> and all that you've ever done wrong, I absolve you. You would go, you are not a part of this, bro. Like, who are you? Like, my problem's with them. They need to apologize. This is where this needs to get worked out. Or the God we've both offended by our attitudes, you got nothing to do with this. And so Jesus looks at this man and Jesus says, your sons are forgiven. And the Pharisees and scribes are in the back throwing penalty flags. Like, you can't talk like that. You can't say that. Only God can say that. Who do you think you are? And as he does it, Jesus knows what's happening in their hearts. And Jesus starts to speak about the doubts that are in their hearts. They haven't even voiced yet. In verse eight, Jesus immediately perceived this and asked, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? Which is a good question. Which is easier? Which is easier? Yeah, if you notice in the text, they don't answer either. It's a tough question. I'll give you the answer. It depends. In one sense, saying your sins are forgiven is easier because it's hard to verify whether or not it really happened. So anyone can say, it. your sins are forgiven. You're like, All right, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And in that sense, Telling a paralyzed person, rise up and walk is way harder because we're about to find out in two seconds if you got the juice to pull that off. Right? But on the other side, to actually forgive sins, it's way harder because only God can really do that. And so how does Jesus reconcile it? He says, to show you that the son of man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he ties them together. I want you to understand I'm not just here to heal you and I'm not just here to put you under some rules. I want you to understand that the son of man has the authority to forgive your sins. Get up and walk. And that guy rises, takes his mat and goes home. And it says, they were amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Who talks like that? Why does Jesus force this issue? He could have just healed the paralyzed guy. He says, no, no, no. I want you to understand who it is you're dealing with here. I am 
care, I care about your problems. I have the power to heal them, but there's something deeper going on with you. You need forgiveness and you know it. And I'm here to give it. Who am I? I'm the forgiver of sins. And he takes divine prerogative. And what's interesting is in the rest of these conflicts, they're all based around his identity. And we won't read them all, but to summarize them, he walks out and there's Levi. Levi was a tax collector, which back then, if you worked for the government to excise taxes, people hated you. So you were the number one sinner. They did not care for you. And Jesus looks at the most outcast person in society, Levi, and says, I want you to roll with me, come with me. And like anybody who's guilty and knows it, he's so overwhelmed that Jesus would say, I want you. He does the most natural thing. He throws a party and he invites all his crazy sinner buddies. And Jesus shows up at the party and what's wild is the Pharisees, they're looking at him and be like, why are you hanging out with those people? Religious people aren't supposed to hang out with sinners like that. And what Jesus does is he doesn't like crack open a beer and be like, you need to relax, all right? Yeah, what's up? Like, he doesn't affirm all their choices. What he says is, these guys are sick, but I'm the physician. Which is great because he says, I want to be with these people. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, because you're sick. And they're like, yeah, wait, what? He's like, yeah, man, look at your life, bro. Like you got problems. But I'm the physician. I'm the one who can heal you. I can hear your heart. I can hear your soul. I know what you've done. I've seen where you've been and I've want you anyway. And I want to change you from the inside out. That's who he is. I'm the, I'm the sin forgiver. I'm the sickness healer, not just physical, but deeply spiritual too. They start to question him about fasting. They say, the religious leaders say, every religious person fasts. Every religious person goes without food to pray to God. Why don't your disciples? And Jesus says, they will fast. It's a good spiritual discipline. But he says, why don't they now? He says, because the groom's here. You don't fast at a wedding. Now, what's crazy about that is they're having a religious conversation. And all through the Old Testament, only one person is presented as the groom to the bride of the nation of Israel. And that's Yahweh, the Lord. Isaiah 54, 4 says, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Only the almighty is the groom of his people. And they say, why don't your people fast and pray? And he's like, you know why? Because the groom's here. The groom's here. And they're like, huh, what? You're saying you're the representative from God to unite himself in a covenant of love with his people? Are you taking divine prerogatives to yourself? That's exactly what he's doing. He does it again the next Sabbath. They're walking on the Sabbath. This is the next conflict. And his disciples are walking through a field and they're picking heads of grain, rolling them in their hands to get the husks off and eating them. And the religious leaders get mad because they say, that's harvesting. You're harvesting, which is illegal on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus responds, and what he could have done is taken the light work and gone, hey guys, they're just grabbing a few heads and rolling them together and munching on them. Technically, that is not harvesting. You guys are being a little too narrow in your interpretation. He could have gone that way. He doesn't. Jesus takes a harder road and kind of punches back and says, you guys have missed the heart of God. God gave Sabbath for his people to rest. That's why he gave us that, is to rest and enjoy and be refilled by him. You've made it such a list of rules. You've taken a gift from God and made it oppressive. You guys are messing up the heart of God. Even as you read God's word, he takes a harder stance at them. And that would have been a powerful way to go. But he doesn't stop there. He ends the argument and says, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Boom, and walks off and they're like, what? You can't say that. 
the Sabbath is God's day. The Sabbath is his day. And he's like, yeah, that's my day. I'm the Lord of that day. And they're like, you can't say that. You're taking divine prerogatives. And Jesus keeps pushing the issue. And so the last conflict story is there on the Sabbath. And in the middle of the Sabbath, the day you're supposed to rest, he sees a guy with a withered hand. And he says, hey, get up here a second. And then he looks at the crowd and he says, you think it's right to heal on the Sabbath? And the religious leaders are in the back like, don't you do it. Don't <laughs> you do it. And he goes, healed. Heals the guy. And at the end of that, the passage says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel about how to destroy him. If I was shooting that as a movie, I would have gotten a tight shot on the face of Jesus and kicked in the music in the background of Who's Gonna Run This Town Tonight by Jay-Z and Rihanna, right? Because Jesus just said, hey, you know what? I don't fit in your boxes, but guess what? I'm taking divine prerogatives. I'm the healer. I am the husband. I am the forgiver. I am much more than a religious teacher or a helping healer. I am God Almighty come into your space. That's how he identifies himself. And if you notice in the text, in that moment, you get two responses. Amazement, following him, or I want to kill him. What you don't get is mild amusement. You don't get mild amusement. Personal application, C.S. Lewis said this, on the one side, clear, definite, moral teaching. On the other, claims which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humblest of men. Jesus told people their sins were forgiven. This only makes sense if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love was wounded in every sin. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be a devil of hell. And you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, I'm your authority. That's who I am. And when someone presents themselves as your authority, there's really only two responses, allegiance or rebellion. Now, I know as soon as I say that, and this is where we're going to close, I know some of you hear that and you go, man, I hate the sermon. You keep saying the word authority and I hate authority. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And you're presenting this authoritative Jesus. I can't stand this. I came to feel happy and you're ruining it. And for some of you, I would say that might be because you've had people in authority over you and they use that power to hurt you. They didn't elevate you. They didn't care about you. They maybe exploited you. And you say, I will never be put in that position of domination again. But that doesn't change who Jesus is. He can do things no one can do. He says things no one says. And he claims divine prerogatives. And he says, I am the Lord, whether you like it or not. And though many of us resist authority, the truth is, when life does spin out of control, we long for authority. We long for it. When the hurricanes come, when the floods come, we say, who will lead us? Who will save us? When we hit moments of crisis, we look for an authority. Will someone with power enough to solve the problem and love enough to do it step forward and help us? That's in the human heart. Authority is scary, but it's also what we desperately need. 
it's interesting. The first gathering, nobody did. I mentioned to them that I grew up watching a show called Captain Planet. Anyone ever seen Captain Planet? Okay, five people. There was like one in the first one. All right, let me just briefly explain Captain Planet. A handful of kids, and they all had these little rings with powers, and some environmental catastrophe would be in the offing, all right? Here comes a tsunami, here comes a hurricane, and these kids would, would band together and use their ingenuity. We're gonna solve this forest fire. And about 15 minutes in, they would realize we completely lack the tools. And so they would unite their little rings and it would call forward Captain Planet who has the power to heal the planet. And the show would always end with him solving the problem. And so as you watch the show over and over again, it was the same thing. I can solve my own problems. I'm overwhelmed by my problems. Captain Planet, save us. And so as you got older, every 15 minutes, you're like, will you just call the captain? This is the stupidest thing. How come every time you're like, we can do it. You're like, you demonstrably can't. You've never been, just call the captain. Because when it all comes apart, you need someone who has the power to bring peace where there's chaos and love enough to want to. Authority's scary, but we desperately need it. There was a movie years ago, tell me if you've seen this, called Hook. Do you remember this? About Peter Pan, anybody? Four people on that one. Okay, thank you. All right, we're, we're gonna get some response out of you, 1130. Um, Hook, but if you recall, it was Peter Pan, was old, played by Robin Williams, but he returns to Neverland. And when he returns, there's a different kid uh, in charge of the Lost Boys. You remember he had like the big spike, red spiked hair. His name was, uh... oh, so you have seen Hook. <laughs> Everybody knows Rufio. Everybody knows Rufio. Who is Rufio? Who cares about Rufio? But when you see the show, Peter Pan is in Neverland with the Lost Boys. But they're this kid's like, no, I'm in charge now. No, I'm running the show. Everyone bow to Rufio. And at the first beginning of the movie, everyone hates Rufio. Sit down, son. The pan is here. And yet something happens in the middle of the show. And he realizes, you know what? That guy's the king and I'm not. He's got power, I don't. He runs things I can't run. And what happens? He finally bows his knee to the real king. And when he does that, he finds it actually doesn't crush him. It actually sets him free. And by the end, he's a hero. And that's why everybody remembers and loves Rufio. Because when he submitted to the king, it didn't crush him, it set him free. And that's where I wanna close with us. For some of you, look, it is okay. We do ultimately have to decide, does Jesus have my allegiance or do I rebel? But there is time to consider his claims. We are just at the beginning of this book where he will present himself to us. You've got time. If you've got questions, if you're uncertain, just keep coming back. We're gonna keep talking about him. But if you're tempted to step away because you're scared of authority, I just wanna close with this. Look what kind of king he is. Look what kind of rule he leads with. He doesn't enslave us. He sets people free. He doesn't crush us. He heals and restores. He doesn't condemn us. He teaches, invites us to walk along with him. His rule brings the joy of a wedding day. His kingdom brings the Sabbath rest that you can never bring by your own efforts. And he grants you forgiveness you desperately need and can't earn on your own. And how does he do that? Not to spoil the end, but the King of Kings, the Son of God is gonna become a servant to us 
by taking your sin and your guilt and your shame. And he will take that upon himself and bury it in the grave. That's what the cross was. It wasn't a nice teacher being martyred. It was the son of God committing to a transaction. I will take your sin and shame and bury it. And you will take my forgiveness and mercy in life and it be appointed to you. The great exchange, I take your guilt, you take my grace and I change you from the inside out. That's what the king is here to do. He's not here to oppress you or crush you. He has come with all his authority to set you free. If you were encouraged by today's talk, Be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.